Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast on planet Earth, without question. Very good to be here. You all look fantastic. And we've got a very, very exciting episode for you today. Okay, before we get to the episode, can I please ask that if you haven't already, please subscribe, like, share, review, rate, and if you have any time at all, please tell someone about the podcast if you enjoy it. Uh, Word of mouth is without a doubt the strongest marketing tactic. This episode, like all episodes, is brought to you by the terrible people at Caffeine Gum Australia. Uh, So for those that don't know, Caffeine Gum Australia is a company that Kate and I own and I just first discovered it when I was playing for the Rebels in 2015. We we had a night game. Well, sorry, I should say the Melbourne Rising in 2015. We had a night game, and for, for some reason, we decided to leave Melbourne at 6 a.m. for a 7.30 kickoff in Manly. And uh, I was a little bit tired, as you would be. And someone was walking around, the trainer was walking around the, the change room handing out these little blue chewing gum tablets. I'm like, oh, what's that? A little bit dubious about it. He goes, mate, do you like coffee? And I go, yeah, I love coffee. He goes, well, just have one. Oh, it's good, good enough for me. So I had one and I, I went from feeling very tired to feeling like I could run through a wall. And I believe that I even played 80 minutes that day, which for anyone that knows me is incredibly unusual. And that's it. Now we sell it to nearly every professional sporting code in Australia. It's batch tested. It has 100 milligrams of caffeine per piece. Uh, And as it absorbs through your mouth, not your stomach, you don't have any stomach issues, which a lot of the pre-workouts and coffee and caffeine tablets can give you. And it's free delivery Australia-wide. So that's enough marketing for today. Please check it out at www.com caffeinegumaustralia.com. Okay, I've got a theory that you know a podcast is good when the time flies by, you've got maybe 50 to 100 questions more at the end of it than you did at the start of it, and the guest agrees to come back for a second one. So that was certainly this episode. I had a great time talking to Matt. He He's very engaging. He's very generous with his time. And I hope you guys enjoy it too. So I'm just going to give you a brief rundown of his coaching resume. He obviously had a a professional uh, playing career as well. He's played rugby league and rugby union. I believe he also represented the Wallabies. So he was the head coach at Kubota in Japan for four years. Uh, Best In 2002, he was the top league semi-finalist, which at the time, or might still be, was the best finish in the club's history. Then he was the Australia A attack coach. Uh, at the same time, he was the attack coach for the Brumbies. Then he went on to become the head coach of the Leicester Tigers for a five-year period for his first stint. So they won the 2013 Aviva Premiership, uh, Heineken Cup quarter-finalists, 2012 Aviva Premiership runners-up, 2011 Aviva Premiership runners-up, Heineken Cup quarter-finalists, LV Cup champions, 2010 Guinness Premiership champions, 2009 Guinness Premiership Champions and the Heineken Cup runners-up. Very impressive. Then from there, he went on to be the head coach at Leinster in Ireland. 
Uh, in 2015, they were the Champions Cup semi-finalists. 2014, sorry, he was the Pro 12. They were the Pro 12 champions and Heineken Cup quarter-finalists. Then he went on to be the co-head coach of the Queensland Reds. Um, then he was the assistant coach for Tonga on the undefeated tour of Europe, beating Spain, USA, and Italy. From there, he went back to being the head coach of the Leicester Tigers. And now he's working as a community liaison manager for LDK Seniors Living uh, in the ACT in Canberra, and he's apparently really enjoying it. So very, very impressive resume. He had some really good insights into all areas of coaching and learning and leadership. And I think that's enough of an intro for me. I enjoyed the hell out of this episode. I hope you do as well. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Matt O'Connor. Okay, we're live. Matt, thanks very much for doing this, mate. I really appreciate your time. I know it's uh, Tuesday during the middle of the week, so I'm really grateful that you agreed to do this. Mate, firstly and most importantly, how have you been? Where are you in the world at the moment? How are you spending your time? Yeah, so, um, mate, I'm good. Life life couldn't be better. I've got a grandchild. I've got a dog. I've got a job. So it's um, it's pretty good, done. But um, I'm back in Canberra have been sort of for the last uh, four and a half years since I finished up at Tigers. Um, that was my last um, last significant full-time in, involvement in, in rugby. And um, I, I've certainly enjoyed being a uh, civilian, if you like. And um, I was fortunate enough while I was, while I was coaching at Leicester the second time around to, to come across a guy on a plane flying back to Brisbane and I was going on to, to London and, and, and Leicester, a guy who's involved in, in seniors living. And, um, and we had a conversation and he was starting up a village in Canberra and, um, and was looking for people outside of that um, aged care space to be involved and, and try and do things a little bit differently and, and a fresh set of eyes and, and all of those things. So I've been, I've been with LDK now, Dunk, for four years and, Although a significant change of pace from from professional footy, it's um, it's a it's a great space, and and you come across so many so many good Australians that um, that you would you know you you would never appreciate otherwise, and and you know a lot of them from sort of seventy five to ninety um, become friends. So it's uh, it's it's a great it's a great space to be in at the moment. So we hear all the time from players who jump back into the real world for lack of a better term, like what is the real world anyway? But you, you very rarely hear of coaches or hear from coaches jumping from high level professional sport back to the real world. What was the transition like for you? Was it, was it something that you were looking forward to? Did you enjoy the change of pace? Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was circumstantial. I mean, we we know this, you know, we know the dynamic of of professional rugby, and and um, we we sort of being from Canberra, we settled in Canberra again, and and then from there it becomes it becomes very very difficult. The the only professional mob in town are the Brumbies. Um, so so if you want to be in town, it's it's fairly limited in relation to that. So so. 
I was fortunate enough Doug, to meet Paul Brown and, and he's the owner and founder of, of LDK. And, and, you know, I, I think a lot of, a lot of top end coaches um, would like a change, but it's very, very hard to, to find something that fits. Um, and, and I was just, I was just fortunate and, and, you know, and I, I'm, I'm thankful to Paul every day that, you know, that I can be in town and be around the people that I want to be around and do something that's that's really fulfilling and enjoyable. But you know, I think a lot of people end up on that on that conveyor belt of coaching um, because and, and I was no different. I I studied, I did an education degree, I did a sports science degree, I then was in the professional game for you know 25 years. It it it's it's unreal and you wouldn't change any of it, but it's limiting at the same time. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of skills that you develop that aren't necessarily transferable to the real world. It seems like there's a lot in, in theory around, you know, around uh, high performance and around leadership and around, but coaching a um, staff team at one of our retirement villages and coaching elite rugby players is not quite the same. And, um, and you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you have to evolve in, in all, all positions. But, you know, it's, it's just, I think, finding something where is fulfilling and, and ticks all the boxes and, and you can use some of the skills that you've learned. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's a good place to be at the moment. You've had a very interesting career. How did you get your start into coaching? Were you, were you player coaching in Japan and then you just transitioned into being a head coach? Yeah. I mean, I, I always, so the education, I mean, and, and, um, significantly younger than you mate. So we, we're dealing with a game that wasn't professional when I'm coming out of school in 88. Um, and I, I, I played league and union and, and desperately wanted to pursue playing one of the rugby codes forever. But the reality was that you can't do that. And so I did an education degree. Like a lot of people of my generation and before, you teach PE, you coach the first 15, you have an involvement. So that's what my world looked like. Then finished the, um, finished the education degree did not want to enter the real world, the big nasty place. So I did a sports science degree um, to, to just to upskill myself around what happens down the road and make very, very fortunate then in, you know, 95, the game goes pro. So, so from there, it, it was a different landscape for everything. And, um, and I, I signed Super League at the time and then um, ended up, in Japan, playing rugby with um, with a couple of mates from Canberra who were in the in the ACT side um, when I was in there, and and ended up in Japan at Kubota Duncan, and they were a team that had gone from third division to second division to the top league yeah. when I got there. So there was huge aspiration in the in the joint, and they've delivered on that now, and they're one of the you know one of the you know, top four, six sides consistently now. But at the time, all their rugby culture, all their intel, all their everything 
had been fairly basic coming through the coming through the different grades to end up in the top league. So when I got there, there was a massive void around how we set up a program, how we do it to be at the at the top end of this of the of the Super League. So of the top league, sorry. So I, I got sort of thrust into that, but it was something that I was going to do anyway, um, you know, and that's what I had done post-school with the teaching and with the sports science. So, so it, was, it was significantly sooner than I would have ideally chose, but at the same time, the, the skills and the, the ability to be involved in a professional program as a... As a really really young coach like late late 20s yeah. was was unbelievable and and we had you know they weren't full-time but in essence they were because they had time off work and bits and pieces and like, we, we had a group of about 80 players so from a from a trial and error finding your feet development of philosophy and and all of those things um in in a country where English was very much a second language. So, so there was a whole range of upskilling that I had to go through in relation to the messaging, yeah. um, which set me up brilliantly, um, no question, for the, the, the road of, of coaching. Every single coach I've ever spoken to that spent time in Japan says that it's, it's actually incredibly beneficial for their development as a coach. Because most of the Japanese guys are listening to you through a translator. So you have to be very concise with your messaging and make sure that you don't waffle on too much and get your fucking point across. 100%. That, it was, that, was that your experience? Oh, 100%. And, and the, thing that, the thing that I always I always took from coaching up there was you've got to be economical with your words. And, and that doesn't matter whether you're talking to Aussie kids or Irish kids or Japanese kids or English kids. Mate, you, you, the more you say, and this is a good message for coaches in general, the more you say, the more you set yourself up for interpretation. So, you know, it it's, it's, has to be clear and concise and it has to be consistent. So, you know, from that perspective, um, we, we won't, we probably haven't got time to delve into the uh, the challenges that go with interpretation, but um, yeah, I was I was quite lucky that I was I was there for six years total, and three of those were were in a very playing, and that was the primary function, but coaching the backs and other bits and pieces. So by the time I got to coaching, I could coach on the field um, in Japanese, and and so many of the rugby terms are the rugby terms. So they don't change scrum, they don't change breakdown, they don't change those sorts of things. So, so I was able to coach on the field um, in Japanese, but, but um, the meetings and then the, the, the staffing bits and pieces, you need interpretations. But it's, it's the quality of your interpreter has a huge impact in that space, like anything. Um, and I had one very, very good one, and I had one very, very bad one. But um, you know, the 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 bad one, and you you would have heard the the examples was I'd be saying, for fuck's sake, mate, would you get your feet close to that bloke? And he would be saying, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, but could you please not the same? So you know, it it just depends on on the interpretation and their level of 
of knowledge. So, you know, but I was, I was, like I said, I was fortunate that I had enough of a grounding in it because I'd been there for three, four years um, that I could do the coaching in Japanese and then, and then we could elaborate off the field with the interpreter. I want to circle back to some of the cultural differences between the places that you've worked at, between the countries that you've worked at. But um, the one of the main purposes of this uh, podcast is an education tool for young coaches. Yep. And, and at, at all the seminars and all the courses that you do, they bring up a coaching philosophy. How important in your view is it to have a solidified coaching philosophy and do do you have a, a coaching philosophy? Yeah, I mean it's it it varies. It it varies with group to group and culture to culture. But the the things around what you value in the game is what your philosophy is done. And you you need to as a young coach, you need to develop that. And depending on your position in the environment that you're in, how strongly you can get that across varies greatly obviously so if you're if you're an assistant and you're helping out a first 15 or a club side you're a little bit tied to the philosophy of of the people above you but yeah i i don't think you can't develop that side by side hand in hand with that um because you you need something to set your stool out as a coach and what you want to value and you what you want the players to take away from your engagement, knowing where we started with the economy of words and, and, you know, being quite concise with that message, you have to have something in the background to, to tie it all to. Uh, I mean, the, and I, and I say it a lot to, to coaches now um, is the only currency players operate in is your ability to make them better. Oh, yeah. That's it, you yeah. know. So, so they like you. They don't like you. They think you're good bloke. They think you're a pain in the ass. It doesn't matter. And 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 I'm talking from I'm talking from coaching at the elite level, and I haven't done any of the grassroots stuff. Um, but the only currency is making them better. Now they like you. That's a bonus, and you you, you don't intentionally go to fall out with anybody. Obviously, it's all about that belonging and, and bringing everyone on the journey. But you have to be confident enough in your ability to make them better. And if you make them better as players and people, then you're, you're, ticking, uh, you're ticking massive boxes. And so true. It's so true, isn't it? Like you can dislike someone, but if you know they're going to help you improve, you're going to have a lot of respect for them. And I think at the end of the day, not everyone's going to like you. But if they at least respect that you're trying to help them in whatever aspect of their game or their life, they're going to have some respect for you and listen to you. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, all those all those characteristics that go with that around around honesty and integrity and 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 team first, you know, that's that's where you can actually build into what what you value in the game, you know, whether you you know. And there's all sorts of different ways to skin a cat, as we say. But you know, the the team first and the honesty mantra is paramount. And you know, I I've been fortunate enough to be in some of the you know some of the most successful club environments in the world. And you know, people will like you or dislike you, but they will value your input if you are honest 
and you put the team first. And you know that's 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 at the at the crux of it. What you have to do, and you know some of those you know Brumbies, Leicester, Leinster environments, the the expectation is extreme. You know, and and that that expectation drives the whole environment um, in a positive way. You know, and and you know, I, I was at the Brumbies after they won the Super Super Twelve title. I was at the Tigers and and Leinster when when they were incredibly successful. And that extreme expectation to be better, to win stuff, is is what drives the whole environment. I'm gonna we're gonna go, get around to those clubs. I really want to dive into that. But something, something I have to ask you is you've had the full spectrum of roles in your career. You've been a player coach. You've been a head coach. You've been an assistant coach. So I've, I've got a theory. It's just completely unfounded, and I've never questioned anyone about it. Do you believe that certain people are predisposed to certain roles? So like some, people, some people's niche might be an attack coach, and that's it. They're never going to be a head coach. They should never try and be a head coach but they could be the world's best attack coach. Similarly, some people are meant to be head coaches. Some people are meant to be specialist coaches. What's what's your view on the differences between the roles? And do you think that certain people are predisposed to roles? I think so. I mean, I think, I mean, we'll start with the predisposed, you know, there's, there's, I mean, like like life in general, you know, if you if you use the if you use the teaching analogy, there's there's brilliant classroom teachers that are never going to be headmasters, um, and it's it's a different it's a different makeup and it's a different it's a different skill set. Dunk, to be honest, um, you know. So I think there there certainly is a well, there's a knowledge and there's a personality fit around those roles, um, and that's that's the that's the beauty of the game is that, you know, when, when, when you are in a professional environment, you need to put people around you that actually supplement what you can do and what you can't do. Like any field of life, mate, as we, as we know, Business. but you know, I've, yeah, of course, you know, so, so from that perspective, the best salesperson doesn't necessarily make the best CEO. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's just getting the fit right. Um, I mean, a, a coaching team in a professional environment, the balance of that is is really really important. Um, but for the purpose of young coaches, I, I still think where we spoke about the philosophy, there is huge value in a really broad understanding of the game. Um, and and if if you're a back and you don't understand line out and scrum and set piece, there's scope in understanding that. And the same for forwards understanding why the backs do what they do, which is quite hard to understand for most forwards. But, but there, there's huge growth in, in the individual in understanding that because I was fortunate enough in Japan because of where Kubota was to coach everything and, and had to understand everything because as the, as the um, guys in at the club Everyone was asking you, "What? How do you do this? What do you do here?" So I had to then spend time growing my knowledge of the game, then get an opportunity at, at, at the Brumbies to come back and just coach the attack. Then you know you've got to refine that knowledge and you've got to then develop the detail in that aspect of the game, um, and then 
in a, in a broader sense, um, I ended up at um, at Leicester, and then for the next sort of ten years, done coaching the attack and the D and the backs, and you know, at the at the elite level. So without the Japanese experience, yeah. you can't actually do that. Um, so so I think the the opportunity is in developing your philosophy and growing your understanding of the dynamics of the game in all aspects. Uh, um, and then you set yourself up with the ability to specialise in backs, attack, D, forward, scrum, whatever it is. Um, but you, the, the broad understanding and, and stapling that to a philosophy around what you stand for, now that that is movable, but what it can't be is impulse buying is, is how I describe it. Um, you're at the supermarket and you go, I'm going to get a Kit Kat, as opposed to I saw the All Blacks play and they did that, so we're going to do that. Well, if it fits into your philosophy, then that's brilliant, but you can't just cut and paste. You know, you have to, you have to staple yourself to this is what I believe in the game and then and then move that with the group that you're coaching. The, the beautiful thing about, about coaching and leadership is that you're 100% tied to the results that the people you're in charge of get. There's nothing to do with you. And that's the, and that's, that's the, that's the flick that you have to make is these are the people that I've been assigned to lead and how good they are is a direct reflection of how good I am. So it's 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 all into it's all interwoven, mate. It's all interwoven. You've coached all over the world. What are the cultural differences between the various countries? And as a coach coming into a team and as a culture, like I, I can imagine, the Japanese culture is very different to being in Ireland or England or Australia. Did you have to? mold yourself to that culture or were you still yourself but you adapted I'm not, really good. I'm not that good at molding I won't lie to you um, but, but, but you know what you know what I mean because yeah, I feel yeah, like 100 I feel like if you go 100%. into Japan and you're just like this is the way we do things at the Brumbies that is absolutely the only way we're going to do it people aren't going to listen to you necessarily they might but no, no. You, you, you that that is that is the first mistake any coach makes. We did it here, so we're going to do it there, is the, is the first mistake you make. I mean, um, thankfully, thankfully because we'll, we'll go through it in chronological order, but so thankfully in Japan, I was playing with these blokes. Um, they had a huge amount of respect for me because of the people that they were and I was. So, so that was really good. The other thing is that you look very, very different to the Japanese. So they know you're different and they actually, there was a freedom for them in the fact that I wasn't Japanese so that they didn't have to be Japanese with me, if that makes sense. It does, completely. Okay. So so I was all about, back to the currency, I was all about making them better. They knew I wanted to make them better. They knew I was team first. They bought in from that perspective. So, so there was a huge freedom in those blokes in that playing group in the club 
that I wasn't going to play the Japanese games. They weren't going to play the foreign games. We were just going to focus on being better and respecting each other and getting to a point where we were all comfortable. The problem, like we alluded to before, was then the interpreter who is, is going, sorry, 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 sorry. That becomes a, a, an issue. But culturally, Japan was unbelievable. Kubota as an as a organisation were fantastic. Um, I've got lifelong friends from our six years there that I still talk to really regularly. Um, and the answer to that one was no, culturally, I didn't have to adjust really. And it was all, it's all in the in the whole scenario around rugby. So it's it's all right. I got to I got to England, and that was what I perceived England to be, and what England was was very, very different. And and I lobbed up to Leicester Tigers most successful club in England, you know, had six, seven blokes who huge history as well, who won the world cup in 2003. And the refreshing thing for me, culturally dunk, which is probably the key for all the very, very, very successful environments is I logged up there and I'm talking to Lewis Moody and I'm talking to Ben Kay and I'm talking to Julian White and, and you know, there's another 12 internationals there, um, Aaron Major and, and, you know, and they're saying, um, mate, we'll change anything you want to change if it's going to make us better. Because we did it last year and the year before and we won the World Cup and we, mate, not interested, not interested. If you've got something that from being in Oz or, and, or what you think we can improve our game, they bought in 100%. And um, from a, from a um, cultural perspective, the, the standards and the expectation are there and, and, you know, they respect you've come from the Brumbies and you've done this and all of that. But if you're going to make us better, we'll do whatever you say. Um, and and then there's an onus on there's an onus on the coach then to make sure that you're winning games and they're getting better and all of that stuff. But it's very very different to a mediocre environment where they're going no 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 we've done it this way. Yeah. Well, hang on. That that for me is one of the key differences in in successful environments is that they're willing to move on and they're, they're willing to adjust things that have been relatively successful if there's something that you can sell to them that's better. Um, and, you know, Leicester had had a pretty um, dour attack and they, they, you know, they were very forward-orientated and, and there, was, there was scope there um, and I got on very, very well with Richard Cockrell, who's now coaching England. Um, and and we were we were quite fortunate to to have a fantastic relationship that we didn't water down the the physical abrasiveness of our game, but we added strings to it um, to make us a better footy team. And and the players um, and make guys at the top of their game, guys at the end of their careers who had achieved everything in the game, just wanted to be better. Um, and can, the can same... I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question about that, mate? Sorry, sorry yeah, mate. to cut, sorry no, to cut no, you off. I, I think that would be any coach's dream to walk into an environment where everyone just wanted to be better 
And all you yeah. have to do is, is show me how I can be better. Prove to me that it works and I'll, I'll run through walls for you. Yeah. For, for, for coaches that don't walk into those environments, have you, have you learned any tactics, tricks, anything along the way that could potentially mold players to become like that? Or is that something that you have to have cultivated for a long period of time? I mean, it's 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 really hard, and and looking at looking at school footy, and then looking at club footy, which has been my life because of my boys who are who are nineteen and twenty one. Um, it's it's the motivation. It's it's trying to find the motivation tangent in the group. So you're going to have old blokes who aren't overly motivated. You're going to have young blokes that are really really keen but in experience and you're going to have blokes that are aspiring to be better, to play rep, to be pros, to whatever it is. You've just got to get whatever that tangent is dunk as high as you can so that you can change the, the behaviours in essence. And that's what you, whether it's behaviours off the field or on the field, that's what you're trying to do in leadership. So it's, it's just trying to, trying to get that, so I look at I look at club footy and and you know where are the motivations and who you know if you've got a if you've got a, a group of guys that are really comfortable and they're 25 and they you know they work hard and then they then they have a game of footy and then they play hard they win lose or draw really hard to adjust that as a as a coach um, and I suppose then the decision is you've got to probably facilitate what that motivation is. And it's pointless, you know, pointless getting them to do burpees and, and, and broncos and what have you if that's their motivation and their why. So it's, it's, it's probably just, just working out what that is in your group and then just nudging it. And, and, but, I mean, facilitating that if it's not, and, and you know, no one's going to say it, that we're not here to, to win and it's not win at all costs and it's not all of those things, which has only ever been my existence. So, so it's, it's interesting to look at it through my boys and, and the club scene and, and schoolboy footy is very, very different because they will, you know, nine times out of 10, they are doing it with the blokes they love and they will run through walls and they will do whatever. It's just, it's just trying to find what that motivational tangent is um, and sometimes, which would be really hard for, for young coaches, Dunk, is, is when that doesn't align to you as a coach, you know, so which, which you know, it, there's lots of opportunities where it doesn't. And that would be, that would be incredibly difficult for me because, um, you know, I have had very, very few coaching experiences where I don't sit down at the start of the season and go, Right, oh, we're going to do this, and we're going to make the semis, and we're going to try and do that postseason. Like you know, to to you know, it, it's a different, it's a different beast that. Yeah. Um, but it still comes down to the motivational tangent, I think, and, and working out what the significant drivers in the environment are. Um, and you want to you want to have that because that whatever that significant driver is will drag the rest of them like any sort of peer pressure in that direction. Was um so good little tangent there. Was was your experience in, in Leicester the same as Leinster? Yeah, so I was I was I was lucky enough to 
to lob up at Leinster, they've been incredibly successful. And, and um, the, the process around that, that appointment was significant conversations with Jamie Heaslip, Rob Carney, Shawnee O'Brien, Kean Healy, um, Brian O'Driscoll. You know, again, we're talking, you know, um, probably haven't been as successful as the Leicester boys on the world stage, but but certainly in, in a club scenario and, and achieving, you know, individually for themselves. And, and they were exactly the same. And, and you know, we, we, there, was a, there was a feeling in that group that they needed to change their whole defence around um, because not, not big and they were dealing with, you know, big English sides, big French sides, and they had become a little bit passive defensively and they wanted to totally change it to a line speed model and, and, you know, a little bit more aggressive and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, you know, you're talking about five British and Irish Lions and, you know, some of the best players ever to play for Ireland that, again, are going, Maddie, mate, how do we get better? What are we going to do? How, how can we evolve? And, and you know, that's, that's the extreme expectation of, of those environments that, you know, they always win. You have to win. That's the that's the standard, and and you know from that from that perspective, really lucky to be involved in those environments because you know some of the best blokes, best players that that you'd ever come across, but hungry to win every week, every day, um, and 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 just get better. How do you look back on those periods of your life? Like I could imagine being the head coach of the Leicester Tigers or Leinster is a big job. Is, is it as big as it seems? Like, what, what, what are some of your memories from, from those periods of time? The, the, the memory, I mean, very, very fortunate, Dunk, that um, as a family unit, the kids were at an age where there was total buying from Joe and the kids around everything that was Tigers, everything that was Leinster, um, which is huge because it is all-consuming. And, and people, people, I'll go to the back before I get to the front, people, people say, what was it like? And how, how is it different now? And I, the only way I can describe it is I didn't listen to music, and I'm not a massive muso, but I didn't listen to music for 20 years because my head was full the whole time. And, and you know, that's, that's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, watching footy till 10 o'clock at night and then getting a bit of respite at the back end of the week and then, you know, doing what you do around the game if you're not travelling in bits and pieces. But very, very fortunate that the family was so entrenched and loved all the experiences that we had, but it is all-consuming. Would not change a day of it, but it's all-consuming. And, and, you know, apart from music that I listen to occasionally, it's fantastic to leave work and go home and not have to think about what happens tomorrow yeah. for six, 12 hours. And, and you know, the, the load that I had was a little bit extreme and, and probably should have managed that a little bit better. But when you're coaching the attack and you're coaching the D and you're coaching the backs, the, the meeting time and what you need to absorb week to week is massive if you're going to if you're going to be economical with your message. So so there's a there's a whole load of stuff. You know, 
like, like quality teachers or, or, you know, quality anything. Um, you know, there's a whole range of stuff that goes on in the background so that when you when you the light's on, you, you're actually ready for for what gets thrown at you. And you know, the the like I said, you wouldn't change a minute of it. It was it was fantastic. You know, I was I was fortunate enough, you know, to to win five trophies in Europe and and narrowly, you know, we lost the we lost the uh, semi final to to Lon, which was a world fifteen in extra time. We narrowly lost the Heineken Cup final. We, you know, and you know, we lost we lost two two premierships. So it could have been it could have been vastly different, but you wouldn't change a minute of it. It was a, it was a fantastic journey. The kids and Joe thoroughly enjoyed it. We got lifelong friends from from Japan, from England, from from Dublin, um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a better person because of it. I was going to ask the question about how you coped with the the treadmill because it feels like you're on a treadmill and it must have felt like that for 20 years. But I can imagine being successful makes the treadmill significantly easier. Was that your experience? 100%, mate. Yeah, 100%. And, and as I said there, like fortunate enough that, you know, you, you're working and you're flat out, but it was it was never a job, mate. It was, it was never a job. Um, and I say that with 100% integrity that I never perceived it to be a job. It was all about being as good as we could be. Thankfully, I was in environments where the expectation was extreme and you had to win. That wasn't a negative by any stretch. That wasn't an overarching scenario. At different points, when you're not actually as successful as everyone wants you to be, there's there's, um, pressure that goes with it. But I never perceived it to be a job, so it wasn't it wasn't that all encompassing scenario. Um, but um, it's not until you're out of it that you that you actually go, yeah, you know what? And and I was fortunate enough that um, you, you're never on the treadmill because you're always going really really fast, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you know the the season at the Reds. Um, where we were never going to win the competition, but then there was a there was an opportunity to be involved there long term. So so that took the focus around what do we need to do um, to make this group really really successful. And and um, so that was that was a positive mental game for me. But we never got there, so it wasn't a it wasn't a it wasn't a major drama. But. Um, you never it, it never became a grind if you were if you were halfway into a 30 game season in Europe and you were going to come you're going to come sixth or you're going to come eighth that's a treadmill and that's hard and and now looking at the looking at what COVID has done to the game and other other pressure points around you know some of the challenges that, that the game's having um, it's tough mate it's tough now. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be to be at the top end of it, and, and didn't have a lot of those a lot of those budgetary constraints and a lot of those other factors that are that are playing on the game now. You know, head injuries were they they were starting, um, and, and player welfare and safety was was paramount towards the end of of my professional coaching, but it, it wasn't the same beast. 
Uh, you know, now you've got the women's game that is that is becoming um, bigger and bigger, and rightfully so. But it's challenging resource, um, and you know, so so it was it was different dynamics to to some of the dynamics that that guys listening to this and, and ladies listening to this would be feeling in their in their coaching journeys. But um, yeah, it was it was it was a good ride, and um, you know, just just fortunate enough to be. At the pointy end and 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 win some win some trophies. I I um, before I uh, before I started coaching, I was unfortunate enough to lose four grand finals in consecutive years as a player. So um, that that drove me to make sure that if you get to a final, you've got to do your damnedest to make sure you win it. So um, I was I was quite fortunate in um, in the coaching scene. So surely you get to the fourth one, you go, God, we're due now. I have to, have to. Yeah, but uh, anyway, anyway. Just just looking back, what do you think makes those clubs successful? We, we covered quite a, a lot there. The players having this growth mindset. Obviously, some of the clubs have good resources financially, but it, it can't just be money that makes a club successful because we've seen, we've all seen examples of people trying to buy a team and it might yeah. work briefly, but it doesn't yeah. have the long-term success. Yeah. What, what do you put it down to? Everyone wants this long-term, you know, success, but but what makes what makes it? Yeah, I mean, I think the the not culture, but if we talk culturally, I think I think that's got a huge part to do with it. Um, Crusaders, Rumbies at different stages of their of their journey. Leinster is the standout, um, and and the, the logistics of Leinster is you've got an incredibly robust competitive school environment, okay, which is Dublin, and those private schools have a competition that is the best in the world, um, and they have a knockout structure that will get 12,000 people to the round games, um, wow. and you've got all those kids fighting over themselves to be the best at their school and then fighting to get into the Leinster program. And thankfully, because Leinster has been successful over the last decade, Dunk, all those kids want to do is get a Leinster shirt and play for Leinster. And we see it in the rugby league with Penrith. Yeah. And we've seen it historically at different clubs in the NRL and the AFL um, and we see it with the Crusaders, and and you know the I remember when we were at the Brumbies, and and um, you know in the in the early two thousands, and and there was kids, the George Smiths and the Mark Gerrards and the Sterling Mortlocks that were seeing the Brumbies do unbelievable things on the footy field that wanted to be a part of that, um, and it's it's culturally tied to the the kids and the tribalism of the place. And then, then it's the quality of the program. Um, and, you know, it's, it's making sure that anyone you bring into that environment, player, coach, staff in general, understands the standards and understands the expectation. Because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people um, that think they understand 
that extreme scrutiny of having to win every training session, having to win every Saturday. They think they do because they were playing in a team that ran ninth yeah. um, and they're quite talented. What it takes to be the very, very best is very, very different. And you've got to make sure, you've got to make sure that who you let into the system is capable of dealing with the expectation, if that makes sense. It does. Um, because you you can't you can't have a physio, a assistant coach, and a player come into your environment that are there just for the paycheck and for the, wear the shirt on a Saturday night to wear the shirt. Yeah. As soon as you do that, you're setting yourself up to fail. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure we could do an entire podcast on how you actually set all that up because I'm sure that's a really in-depth topic to get that right and how important it is to screen your people, make sure they've got the right personalities, and, and I'm sure it's different from being at a club down the bottom than it would be from a world-class club that competes every single year. 100. percent I mean, and and unfortunately, it's what you need to go from what you need to go from eighth to fourth is very, very different in relation to what you need to go from second to first um, because you've got to have, you've got to have talent. You know, you've got to have talent. Now, at the top end, you've got to have character and talent. And, and it doesn't always, unfortunately, work out that way. And, and look, that's not to say that you can't grow both those things hand in hand um, and end up at a at a place where everyone's everyone's winning. Man, I've I've got so many questions. I, I'm going to jump to the the rapid fire ones now because I I feel like I could talk to you for hours, and I know you've got to get out of here soon. We'll do it want, again, mate. We'll do it. Again. I'd absolutely love to. I, w- I want to ask you about failure. What's your relationship like with failure? Do you and do you have any failures that you feel have set you up for future success? Yeah, mate. Those those um. Those grand finals um, were were massive um, and and very very painful. Uh, the, the hangover was probably more painful than the actual, no, as painful. But but those those I was I was fortunate enough Dunk, to be in a rugby team that was very very special. From under eights to first fifteen, we lost one game of footy. Wow, right? um, and that was a, that was a special special footy team. I was then in a very, very good club side. We lost three grand finals. Then um, the, the Canberra Kookaburras went into the Sydney comp. We lost another grand final to Gordon. And what I worked out from that was you can be the best team doing all these things to a period in time, but what actually wins a grand final and what makes you very, very good across the course of it isn't always the same. And, and we probably in one of them was, was weather conditions. The other one was tactical naivety around. We thought we could do what we did in the club in the, in the, in the home and away season to, to win a grand final. So um, that, that, changed, that changed my approach around being a little bit more pragmatic and less philosophical about about the dynamics of the game and, and what you have to do to actually win a title and or win big games yeah. um, where where the um, 
where the commitment is higher and the stakes are higher, the game has to be a little bit different and you need to, you need to bulletproof yourself around that. So, mate, those, those, those grand finals, incredibly painful because for large parts of that, we were the best side in the competition. But at the end of the day, you come away with nothing. So, you know, that, that helped me largely put together a, a, a game, a philosophy, a, a, a coaching mantra that was a little bit more robust and, and less philosophical. And, and I was always uh, creative and I was an inside centre and I was all about scoring tries and how we do it. But it's not all about that when it comes to winning those games where, where the commitment is extreme and the stakes are extreme, then there has to be something else to, to build into that. Um, so that was that was part of it, it and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't take away the the creative element obviously because that's huge and that's that's what backs are there to do. But it, it certainly refined it, mate, for sure. The uh, the challenge of being entertaining whilst winning seems to be a uniquely rugby union problem. It does, and it, it, it it's only unique in this country though. Because, be, yeah, because because in Europe, mate, they stand up and clap and shout when you score a pushover and when you drive them all over and when you actually stick up a box kick and you snap the bloke who catches it. So it, we're competing. We're competing with AFL and Rugby League. And, and that's, that's a real shame for our game because the financial driver of the game in Europe, which is the Six Nations, couldn't be more tribal, and they don't care if they win by a point. It doesn't make any difference at all. They sell out the stadiums, they sell out the corporate, and you just got to win. Um, and unfortunately, we, we, we've got a lot more competitive marketplace done that, that um, you know, it doesn't understand the value that goes with winning. It, it only understands the, the value of entertainment. And I'm sure that we could do another podcast just on that topic. But are there any common characteristics you've seen in all top-level coaches that you've been involved with or worked against or work with? Oh, mate, I think, I think it's, it's their, their ability to drive the environment. Um, you know, like every single interaction that goes on in that environment you can put a you can put a plus or a, a, a ticker across against, yeah. um, and there's very very different ways of driving an environment. I would drive it very very different to an Eddie Jones, and Eddie would drive it very very different to a um, to a Ian Foster. But you've got to drive every single interaction in that environment for a ticker across. And if, if you know that, you know, at the end of a day, at the end of a week, at the end of a season, that you've got 95 ticks and five crosses and you know what those five crosses are and you can address those, you, you're doing something right. And, and the, the thing about that and, the, and not listening to music, and it's relentless, mate, you, you, because as soon as you... As soon as you walk past the standard, you're accepting that standard, and then you set yourself up for a potential a potential failure. Yeah. Um, so, so that the the ability to 
drive that environment relentlessly, and that's not screaming and shouting. That's that's empowering the people. That's having a really good leadership group. That's having a good staff that can help you do that. It's it's all of those things, um, and and there's you know it's becoming more and more prevalent is is that sense of belonging and and you know not earning your stripes but the fact that you walk through the door and you're wearing the same polo as me mate that's that is that is you're a part of it and and we've got to you know we've got to find a common cause so that we all all get better and and that's the currency so um you know it's 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 not rocket science it's it's dealing with people and and bringing the best out of those people but you you got to drive it you, you've got to drive everything um and that's that's the the hard bit is is having the energy and the drive to relentlessly drive that environment the whole time um and that's you know that's that's behaviors on and off the field that's you know, and I, I was fortunate when people, you know, how do you how did you manage those blokes and how did you make sure they didn't, you know, carry on at the weekends and very, very simple, you know. Yeah, you have a mantra around letting good people through the gate. You have a mantra around, you know, we do what's right. And we had very, very few dramas, but the energy to drive it and and you know, and then delegate so that you've got everyone driving it, it's 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 hard. Um, but it's not hard, if that makes sense. The, the relentless um, 24-7 part of it is the hard bit. Did, did you find, obviously you've worked at a lot of successful clubs, but being in that kind of environment where you are expected to win every single day and perform and the players are striving and driving to be better, I mean, it sounds challenging, but it also sounds like it might be easier in a way. Hundred percent, mate. Hundred percent, and and that's 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 the thing too. Is is if you get the if you get this bit right at the front, and you let the right people through the door. And I'm not I'm not saying that I coached angels. I I was coaching young men who made a lot of mistakes along the way, um, but they they weren't terminal mistakes. They were young men mistakes. And and you know you forgive and forget, and they learn from it, and I learn from it, and you know and you play on. But yeah, there's a as long as you get the front end right, Dunk, it, it is an easier. It is a well easier. It's 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 a it's a fulfilling space. Because you're not you're not dealing with you're not dealing with bushfires and spot fires. You're dealing with mate. We've got to win this week. How are we going to do it? Yeah. And that's the and that's the focus. And um, I mean the the recruitment conversations were very very easy around. I'd sit down with you, Duncan. I'd say, mate, do you want to be better? Yeah, I do. This is how we do it. We think we can make you better if you're up for that challenge. And you want to make a rugby decision around you being as good as you can be. That being as good as you could be will probably get you picked for our first team. If you make our first team, you're probably going to play for England or Ireland. Um, that's that's your call, mate. If you if you if you want to take more money or you want to live somewhere else, that's fine. But if you want to make a rugby decision. I think you would add tremendous value to our group and you will get significantly better. Now that's, you know, if, if they want to do that, then make they're, they're welcome to get on the bus. 
I, I want to bring up the Ira boys because thankfully uh, Fraze and Hedge connected us, so we should give them a little plug. Just in, in tying that in with with what I'm about to ask, is how important is me- mentorship for young or even old coaches? Like I found doing this podcast incredibly beneficial, being able to bounce ideas of guys like yourself who've been there. And, and even just to reaffirm that I am on the right track and I am starting to head in a good direction. F- firstly, what are you doing with Ira? And secondly, is mentorship important for young coaches or even older coaches? Yeah, so I was um, I was quite fortunate to to get um, to get um, put in touch with with Hedge and um, Sean Hedger and, and Andrew Fraser, who are, who are old Canberra boys, um, around what they're doing in the in the Irish space. Um, and there is a there is a huge opportunity, I think, around coach development and what we do in this country with our with our young aspiring rugby coaches because. The guys that I've come across um, at club level, at junior rep level, at senior rep level, there is a burning desire to get better. Um, And some of that has personal um, aspirations around it, and so it should. Some of that is just to make the the players and the people that they're leading better. So I think there's there's a huge opportunity. And, And because of the... Because of the resource shortage in the game currently, that is a huge hole, um, a huge hole. And, and I think Ira, with with some of their elite coaching courses and, and some of their some of their mentoring programs that they're looking at, I think I think that that has a huge potential to grow those coaches around what what their philosophies are, what they value in the game, what they should value in the game. And um, I mean, if I think back. To my coaching um, journey and, and education, Dunk, it so much of it, like you said, is affirmation around, oh, I'm doing what Matt did at Leicester. I'm yeah. doing what Matt did at Tigers. And, and you need to hear that feedback. And a lot of it is just simply to put your arm around young coaches to say, mate, you bang on there. That's exactly how you should be doing it. But, you know, from my experience, you could do this and this. Yeah. And, and, you know, that just helps That just helps coaches navigate the space because leadership is a lonely bastard of a joint. Um, and a lot of the time you're standing up there and all the intentions are good, that you, you, you're doing the right thing and you, you're passing on the right message. But, you know, a lot of the time you don't get the feedback to adjust that message slightly, and and that's that's all it is. The the mentoring and the, and the coach Ed, and it's just trying to navigate your way through those things. Never going to be perfect, are we? But but you know, the more exposure you have to someone who's got a broader experience, the better chance you're going to be to navigate those stormy waters at times. Well, some, something I've found wonderful getting into coaching only in the last year and a half really is is just how open uh, the the guys are and sharing what they know. Like, you know, to be able to sit down with Dan McKellar and talk about lineouts or Dan Palmer and talk about scrums, it just accelerates your learning tenfold. And, oh, massive. And, and I, I, I can't think of any other walk of life where people are so generous in sharing what they know. No, and mate, the the analogy the analogy is, and and we were the same in those environments, and we would always let 
coaches in. And I, I mean, at, when we were at Tigers, you know, Dave Rennie um, spent a bit of time with us from a from a professional development perspective. And because you're always learning, you know, and you're always gonna you're always gonna learn something from someone else. So you know, the the fact is, we always had the mantra that you can watch us play, and you can work out what we do. So come and watch us train. Come and it makes no difference yeah. because it's there is no way I can take a world-class recipe and cook that. No chance. So, mate, you can look at it, you can do it, you can do whatever, and, and more than happy to have a conversation around how you do it, how we do it, because we're all going to pick up one or two or three things from the conversation. I'm going to pick up, you know, as much from you, Dunk, around how you do it as you do from how I do it. And that's the, that's the beautiful thing about the game and, and about coaching. Man, I, I know you got to go. Two very quick questions. I'm super grateful for your time. I feel like we could talk for three or four hours here. Yep. If you had to give one piece of advice to a young coach, what would it be? Oh, mate, I think I think um, be true to yourself. Um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, what you are selling a lot of the time is you. Um, and then your responsibility is to grow that knowledge in the background. Um, but you got to be you and you got to sell you and you've got to have an understanding, like we said at the start, that can make those blokes better. Um, and, you know, if you can't, be honest and say, you know what, Freddie, I don't know how I can do that, but I'm going to ring, I'm going to ring Dan McKellar or I'm going to ring you know, somebody and work out how I can help you with that, mate. Um, because honesty is, honesty and being yourself, uh, like all walks of life, mate, are, are going to be the point of difference. It's it's all right not to know. It's not all right not to find out. That's 100%. a good saying that I like. Last question, mate. This might tie in with the last one. Yeah. Uh, but you can take this any way you want. What advice would you give 18-year-old Matt O'Connor? A good one, actually. Um, uh, don't stop learning, I suppose, is, you know, is because um, where, where we started, um, where we started with, with the, the whole coaching thing, you know, you coached here and that was successful, so you take it to there and that's successful. And, and thankfully, you know, when I was in Japan, I didn't bring what I knew previously. I did, obviously, but it wasn't about that. It was about them. And then when I got back to the Brum Brumbies and we had a world-class backline and, you know, it was it was about evolving that. And then you get to the Northern Hemisphere and you're coaching Tigers and that's a different... So, you know, you, it's not about what you're doing with that group. It's only about what you're doing with those people in front of you today. Um, and you know, from that perspective, um, and and look, you you learn in life, you know that you know at eighteen, you don't know anything, um, and 30, it, thirty-five as well, yeah, you don't know. Anything. You don't know much, do we? But um, you know, it's 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 just the other thing as you get older, and it's very relevant, Dunk. I think in this in the space that I'm in at the moment with with seniors is is it's about the memories, you know. And, you know, I was, you know, probably didn't celebrate enough at stages of 
of the success, but there's a fine line too, you know. It's it's but you know, when you when you when you haven't got much else in your life and it's 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 closing in on you, all we got are the memories. So, you know, and and that's where we're incredibly, incredibly lucky with rugby because it, it creates so many instant memories forever, but it creates you know friendships for, for life. So you know we, we we're pretty fortunate. It's um it's not always as easy as we'd like, but nothing's easy until it's hard. And nothing's hard until it's easy. So you know it's it's uh, it's a tricky one. Matt, thank you so much, mate. I've enjoyed the hell out of this. Um, can we do it again sometime? Yeah, mate, definitely. It's it's been fun. It's um I haven't. Uh, I haven't gone into those memories, which is pretty good for a long time. So thanks for helping me share those. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. As always, please like, subscribe, share, review on whatever platform you listen on. And have a really good week. There's going to be more guests coming up. I'll endeavor to put out as much content as possible. If you haven't heard about it or seen it yet, please check out the Loosehead Sports Show, which I do as often as possible with Mr. Jeb Gillespie. He has very interesting looks at the world. And whilst this podcast is more educational, the Loose Heads is probably more entertainment. And that's it. Have a great week, guys. Good to see you all. And we'll be back soon.